Part 3 of The History of the Thirty Years' War, Volume 2, by Friedrich Schiller. Translated by Rev. A. J. W. Morrison. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 3 With the exception of the troops from the Spanish Netherlands, which had poured into the Lower Palatinate, the Emperor had hitherto made use only of the arms of Bavaria and the League in Germany. Maximilian conducted the war as executor of the ban of the empire, and Tilly, who commanded the army of execution, was in the Bavarian service. The emperor owed superiority in the field to Bavaria and the League, and his fortunes were in their hands. This dependence on their goodwill, but ill accorded with the grand schemes, which the brilliant commencement of the war had led the imperial cabinet to form. However active the League had shown itself in the Emperor's defense, while thereby it secured its own welfare, it could not be expected that it would enter as readily into his views of conquest. Or, if they still continued to lend their armies for that purpose, it was too much to be feared that they would share with the Emperor nothing but general odium, while they appropriated to themselves all advantages. A strong army under his own orders could alone free him from this debasing dependence upon Bavaria, and restore to him his former preeminence in Germany. But the war had already exhausted the imperial dominions, and they were unequal to the expense of such an armament. In these circumstances, nothing could be more welcome to the emperor than the proposal with which one of his officers surprised him. This was Count Wallenstein, an experienced officer, and the richest nobleman in Bohemia. From his earliest youth he had been in the service of the House of Austria, and several campaigns against the Turks, Venetians, Bohemians, Hungarians, and Transylvanians had established his reputation. He was present as colonel at the Battle of Prague, and afterward as major general had defeated a Hungarian force in Moravia. The emperor's gratitude was equal to his services, and a large share of the confiscated estates of the Bohemian insurgents was their reward. Possessed of immense property, excited by ambitious views, confident in his own good fortune, and still more encouraged by the existing state of circumstances, he offered, at his own expense and that of his friends, to raise and clothe an army for the emperor, and even undertook the cost of maintaining it, if he were allowed to augment it to fifty thousand men. The project was universally ridiculed as the chimerical offspring of a visionary brain, but the offer was highly valuable if its promises should be but partially fulfilled. Certain circles in Bohemia were assigned to him as depots, with authority to appoint his own officers. In a few months he had 20,000 men under arms, with which, quitting the Austrian territories, he soon afterwards appeared on the frontiers of Lower Saxony with 30,000. The emperor had lent this armament nothing but his name. The reputation of the general, the prospect of rapid promotion, and the hope of plunder, attracted to his standard adventurers from all quarters of Germany, and even sovereign princes, stimulated by the desire of glory or of gain, offered to raise regiments for the service of Austria. Now, therefore, for the first time in this war, an imperial army appeared in Germany, an event which, if it was menacing to the Protestants, was scarcely more acceptable to the Catholics. Wallenstein had orders to unite his army with the troops of the League, and in conjunction with the Bavarian general, to attack the King of Denmark. But long jealous of Tilly's fame, 
he showed no disposition to share with him the laurels of the campaign, or in the splendor of his rival's achievements to dim the luster of his own. His plan of operations was to support the latter, but to act entirely independent of him. As he had not resources like Tilly for supplying the wants of his army, he was obliged to march his troops into fertile countries which had not as yet suffered from war. Disobeying, therefore, the order to form a junction with the general of the League, he marched into the territories of Halberstadt and Magdeburg, and at Dessau made himself master of the Elbe. All the lands on either bank of this river were at his command, and from them he could either attack the king of Denmark in the rear, or, if prudent, enter the territories of that prince. Christian IV was fully aware of the danger of his situation between two such powerful armies. He had already been joined by the administrator of Halberstadt, who had lately returned from Holland. He now also acknowledged Mansfield, whom previously he had refused to recognize, and supported him to the best of his ability. Mansfield amply requited this service. He alone kept at bay the army of Wallenstein upon the Elbe, and prevented its junction with that of Tilly, and the combined attack on the King of Denmark. Notwithstanding the enemy's superiority, this intrepid general even approached the bridge of Dessau, and ventured to entrench himself in the presence of the imperial lines. But attacked in the rear by the whole force of the imperialists, he was obliged to yield to superior numbers, and to abandon his post with a loss of three thousand killed. After this defeat, Mansfield withdrew into Brandenburg, where he soon recruited and reinforced his army, and suddenly turned into Silesia, with the view of marching from thence into Hungary, and in conjunction with Bethlen Gabor, carrying the war into the heart of Austria. As the Austrian dominions in that quarter were entirely defenseless, Wallenstein received immediate orders to leave the King of Denmark, and if possible, to intercept Mansfield's progress through Silesia. The diversion which this movement of Mansfield had made in the plans of Wallenstein enabled the king to detach a part of his force into Westphalia, to seize the bishoprics of Munster and Osnaburg. To check this movement, Tilly suddenly moved from the Weser, but the operations of Duke Christian, who threatened the territories of the League with an inroad in the direction of Hesse, and to remove thither the seat of war, recalled him as rapidly from Westphalia. In order to keep open his communication with these provinces, and to prevent the junction of the enemy with the Landgrave of Hesse, Tilly hastily seized all the tenable posts on the Werha and Fulda, and took up a strong position in Minden, at the foot of the Hessian mountains, and at the confluence of these rivers with the Weser. He soon made himself master of Gottingen, the key of Brunswick and Hesse, and was meditating a similar attack upon Nordheim, when the king advanced upon him with his whole army. After throwing into this place the necessary supplies for a long siege, the latter attempted to open a new passage through Eichsfeld and Thuringia into the territories of the League. He had already reached Duderstadt when Tilly, by forced marches, came up with him. As the army of Tilly, which had been reinforced by some of Wallenstein's regiments, was superior in numbers to his own, the king, to avoid a battle, retreated towards Brunswick. But Tilly incessantly harassed his retreat, and after three days' skirmishing, he was at length obliged to await the enemy near the village of Luther in Barenberg. The Danes began the attack with great bravery, 
and thrice did their intrepid monarch lead them in person against the enemy. But at length the superior numbers and discipline of the imperialists prevailed, and the general of the league obtained a complete victory. The Danes lost sixty standards, and their whole artillery, baggage, and ammunition. Several officers of distinction and about four thousand men were killed in the field of battle, and several companies of foot in the flight, who had thrown themselves into the townhouse of Luther, laid down their arms and surrendered to the conqueror. The king fled with his cavalry, and soon collected the wreck of his army which had survived this serious defeat. Till he pursued this victory, made himself master of the Weser and Brunswick, and forced the king to retire into Bremen. Rendered more cautious by defeat, the latter now stood upon the defensive, and determined at all events to prevent the enemy from crossing the Elbe. But while he threw garrisons into every tenable place, he reduced his own diminished army to inactivity, and one after another his scattered troops were either defeated or dispersed. The forces of the League, in command of the Weser, spread themselves along the Elbe and Havel, and everywhere drove the Danes before them. Tilly himself, crossing the Elbe, penetrated with his victorious army into Brandenburg, while Wallenstein entered Holstein to remove the seat of war to the king's own dominions. This general had just returned from Hungary, whither he had pursued Mansfield, without being able to obstruct his march, or prevent his junction with Bethlen Gabor. Constantly persecuted by fortune, but always superior to his fate, Mansfeld had made his way against countless difficulties, through Silesia and Hungary to Transylvania, where after all he was not very welcome. Relying upon the assistance of England and a powerful diversion in Lower Saxony, Gabor had again broken the truce with the emperor, but in place of the expected diversion in his favor, Mansfeld had drawn upon himself the whole strength of Wallenstein, and instead of bringing, required pecuniary assistance. The want of concert in the Protestant councils cooled Gabor's ardor, and he hastened as usual to avert the coming storm by a speedy peace. Firmly determined, however, to break it, with a first ray of hope, he directed Mansfeld in the meantime to apply for assistance to Venice. Cut off from Germany, and unable to support the weak remnant of his troops in Hungary, Mansfeld sold his artillery and baggage train, and disbanded his soldiers. With a few followers, he proceeded through Bosnia and Dalmatia towards Venice. New schemes swelled his bosom, but his career was ended. Fate, which had so restlessly sported with him throughout, now prepared for him a peaceful grave in Dalmatia. Death overtook him in the vicinity of Zara in 1626 and a short time before him died the faithful companion of his fortunes, Christian, Duke of Brunswick. Two men worthy of immortality, had they but been as superior to their times as they were to their adversities. The King of Denmark, with his whole army, was unable to cope with Tilly alone, much less, therefore, with a shattered force could he hold his ground against the two imperial generals. The Danes retired from all their posts on the Weser, the Elbe, and the Havel, and the army of Wallenstein poured like a torrent into Brandenburg, Mecklenburg, Holstein, and Schleswig. That general, too proud to act in conjunction with another, had dispatched Tilly across the Elbe to watch, as he gave out, the motions of the Dutch in that quarter, but in reality that he might terminate the war against the king and reap for himself the fruits of Tilly's conquests. Christian had now lost all his fortresses in the German states, 
with the exception of Gluckstadt. His armies were defeated or dispersed. No assistance came from Germany. From England, little consolation, while his confederates in Lower Saxony were at the mercy of the conqueror. The Landgrave of Hesse-Cassel had been forced by Tilly, soon after the Battle of Luther, to renounce the Danish alliance. Wallenstein's formidable appearance before Berlin reduced the elector of Brandenburg to submission, and compelled him to recognize as legitimate Maximilian's title to the Palatine electorate. The greater part of Mecklenburg was now overrun by imperial troops, and both dukes, as adherents of the King of Denmark, placed under the ban of the empire, and driven from their dominions. The defense of the German liberties against illegal encroachments was punished as a crime deserving the loss of all dignities and territories, and yet this was but the prelude to the still more crying enormities which shortly followed. The secret how Wallenstein had proposed to fulfill his extravagant designs was now manifest. He had learned the lesson from Count Mansfeld, but the scholar surpassed his master. On the principle that war must support war, Mansfeld and the Duke of Brunswick had subsisted their troops by contributions levied indiscriminately on friend and enemy. But this predatory life was attended with all the inconvenience and insecurity which accompany robbery. Like a fugitive banditti, they were obliged to steal through exasperated and vigilant enemies to roam from one end of Germany to another, to watch their opportunity with anxiety, and to abandon the most fertile territories whenever they were defended by a superior army. If Mansfeld and Duke Christian had done such great things in the face of these difficulties, what might not be expected if the obstacles were removed, when the army raised was numerous enough to overawe in itself the most powerful states of the empire, when the name of the emperor ensured impunity to every outrage, and when, under the highest authority, and at the head of an overwhelming force, the same system of warfare was pursued, which these two adventurers had hitherto adopted at their own risk, and with only an untrained multitude. Wallenstein had all this in view when he made his bold offer to the emperor, which now seemed extravagant to no one. The more his army was augmented, the less cause was there to fear for its subsistence, because it could irresistibly bear down upon the refractory states. The more violent its outrages, the more probable was impunity. Toward hostile states it had the plea of right. Toward the favorably disposed it could allege necessity. The inequality, too, with which it dealt out its oppressions prevented any dangerous union among the states, while the exhaustion of their territories deprived them of the power of vengeance. Thus the whole of Germany became a kind of magazine for the imperial army and the emperor was enabled to deal with the other states as absolutely as with his own hereditary dominions. Universal was the clamor for redress before the imperial throne, but there was nothing to fear from the revenge of the injured princes, so long as they appealed for justice. The general discontent was directed equally against the emperor, who had lent his name to these barbarities, and the general who exceeded his power, and openly abused the authority of his master. They applied to the emperor for protection against the outrages of his general, but Wallenstein had no sooner felt himself absolute in the army than he threw off his obedience to his sovereign. The exhaustion of the enemy made a speedy peace probable, yet Wallenstein continued to augment the imperial armies until they were at least a hundred thousand men strong. Numberless commissions to colonelcies and inferior commands 
the regal pomp of the commander-in-chief, immoderate largesses to his favorites, for he never gave less than a thousand florins, enormous sums lavished in corrupting the court of Vienna, all this had been effected without burdening the emperor. These immense sums were raised by the contributions levied from the lower German provinces, where no distinction was made between friend and foe, and the territories of all princes were subjected to the same system of marching and quartering, of extortion and outrage. If credit is to be given to an extravagant contemporary statement, Wallenstein, during his seven years of command, had exacted not less than 60,000 millions of dollars from one half of Germany. The greater his extortions, the greater the rewards of his soldiers, and the greater the concourse to his standard, for the world always follows fortune. His armies flourished while all the states through which they passed withered. What cared he for the detestation of the people and the complaints of princes? His army adored him, and the very enormity of his guilt enabled him to bid defiance to its consequences. It would be unjust to Ferdinand were we to lay all these irregularities to his charge. Had he foreseen that he was abandoning the German states to the mercy of his officer, he would have been sensible how dangerous to himself so absolute a general would prove. The closer the connection became between the army and the leader from whom flowed favor and fortune, the more the ties which united both to the emperor were relaxed. Everything, it is true, was done in the name of the latter, but Wallenstein only availed himself of the supreme majesty of the emperor to crush the authorities of other states. His object was to depress the princes of the empire, to destroy all gradation of rank between them and the emperor, and to elevate the power of the latter above all competition. If the emperor were absolute in Germany, who then would be equal to the man entrusted with the execution of his will? The height to which Wallenstein had raised the imperial authority astonished even the emperor himself. But as the greatness of the master was entirely the work of the servant, the creation of Wallenstein would necessarily sink again into nothing upon the withdrawal of its creative hand. Not without an object, therefore, did Wallenstein labor to poison the minds of the German princes against the emperor. The more violent their hatred of Ferdinand, the more indispensable to the emperor would become the man who alone could render their ill will powerless. His design unquestionably was that his sovereign should stand in fear of no one at all in Germany beside himself, the source and engine of this despotic power. As a step towards this end, Wallenstein now demanded the cession of Mecklenburg to be held in pledge till the repayment of his advances for the war. Ferdinand had already created him Duke of Friedland, apparently with the view of exalting his own general over Bavaria, but an ordinary recompense would not satisfy Wallenstein's ambition. In vain was this new demand, which could be granted only at the expense of two princes of the empire, actively resisted in the imperial council. In vain did the Spaniards, who had long been offended by his pride, oppose his elevation. The powerful support which Wallenstein had purchased from the imperial councillors prevailed, and Ferdinand was determined, at whatever cost, to secure the devotion of oh-so-indispensable a minister. For a slight offense, one of the oldest German houses was expelled from their hereditary dominions that a creature of the emperor might be enriched by their spoils. 1628. Wallenstein now began to assume the title of Generalissimo of the Emperor 
by sea and land. Wismar was taken, and a firm footing gained on the Baltic. Ships were required from Poland and the Hans towns to carry the war to the other side of the Baltic, to pursue the Danes into the heart of their own country, and to compel them to a peace which might prepare the way to more important conquests. The communication between the lower German states and the northern powers would be broken, could the emperor place himself between them and encompass Germany, from the Adriatic to the Sound, the intervening kingdom of Poland being already dependent on him, with an unbroken line of territory. If such was the emperor's plan, Wallenstein had a peculiar interest in its execution. These possessions on the Baltic should, he intended, form the first foundation of a power which had long been the object of his ambition, and which should enable him to throw off his dependence on the emperor. To effect this object, it was of extreme importance to gain possession of Stralsund, a town on the Baltic, its excellent harbor, and the short passage from it to the Swedish and Danish coasts, peculiarly fitted it for a naval station in a war with these powers. This town, the sixth of the Hanseatic League, enjoyed great privileges under the Duke of Pomerania, and, totally independent of Denmark, had taken no share in the war. But neither its neutrality nor its privileges could protect it against the encroachments of Wallenstein, when he had once cast a longing look upon it. The request he made that Stralsund should receive an imperial garrison had been firmly and honorably rejected by the magistracy, who also refused his cunningly demanded permission to march his troops through the town. Wallenstein, therefore, now proposed to besiege it. The independence of Stralsund, as securing the free navigation of the Baltic, was equally important to the two northern kings. A common danger overcame at last the private jealousies which had long divided these princes. In a treaty concluded at Copenhagen in 1628, they bound themselves to assist Stralsund with their combined force, and to oppose in common every foreign power which should appear in the Baltic with hostile views. Christian IV also threw a sufficient garrison into Stralsund, and by his personal presence animated the courage of the citizens. Some ships of war which Sigismund, king of Poland, had sent to the assistance of the imperial general, were sunk by the Danish fleet. And as Lubeck refused him the use of its shipping, this imperial generalissimo of the sea had not even ships enough to blockade this single harbor. Nothing could appear more adventurous than to attempt the conquest of a strongly fortified seaport without first blockading its harbor. Wallenstein, however, who as yet had never experienced a check, wished to conquer nature itself and to perform impossibilities. Stralsund, open to the sea, continued to be supplied with provisions and reinforcements, yet Wallenstein maintained his blockade on the land side and endeavored by boasting menaces to supply his want of real strength. I will take this town, said he, though it were fastened by a chain to the heavens. The emperor himself, who might have cause to regret an enterprise which promised no very glorious result, joyfully availed himself of the apparent submission and acceptable propositions of the inhabitants to order the general to retire from the town. Wallenstein despised the command, and continued to harass the besieged by incessant assaults. As the Danish garrison, already much reduced, was unequal to the fatigues of this prolonged defense, and the king was unable to detach any further troops to their support, 
Stralsund, with Christian's consent, threw itself under the protection of the King of Sweden. The Danish commander left the town to make way for a Swedish governor, who gloriously defended it. Here Wallenstein's good fortune forsook him, and for the first time his pride experienced the humiliation of relinquishing his prey after the loss of many months and of 12,000 men. The necessity to which he reduced the town of applying for protection to Sweden laid the foundation of a close alliance between Gustavus Adolphus and Stralsund, which greatly facilitated the entrance of the Swedes into Germany. Hitherto, invariable success had attended the arms of the Emperor and the League, and Christian IV, defeated in Germany, had sought refuge in his own islands. But the Baltic checked the further progress of the conquerors. The want of ships not only stopped the pursuit of the king, but endangered their previous acquisitions. The union of the two northern monarchs was most to be dreaded, because so long as it lasted, it effectually prevented the emperor and his general from acquiring a footing on the Baltic, or effecting a landing in Sweden. But if they could succeed in dissolving this union, and especially securing the friendship of the Danish king, they might hope to overpower the insulated force of Sweden. The dread of the interference of foreign powers, the insubordination of the Protestants in his own states, and still more, the storm which gradually darkened along the whole of Protestant Germany, inclined the emperor to peace, which his general, from opposite motives, was equally desirous to effect. Far from wishing for a state of things which would reduce him from the meridian of greatness and glory to the obscurity of private life, he only wished to change the theater of war, and by a partial peace to prolong the general confusion. The friendship of Denmark, whose neighbor he had become as Duke of Mecklenburg, was most important for the success of his ambitious views, and he resolved, even at the sacrifice of his sovereign's interests, to secure its alliance. By the Treaty of Copenhagen, Christian IV had expressly engaged not to conclude a separate peace with the Emperor, without the consent of Sweden. Notwithstanding, Wallenstein's proposition was readily received by him. In a conference at Lübeck in 1629, from which Wallenstein, with studied contempt, excluded the Swedish ambassadors who came to intercede from Mecklenburg, all the conquests taken by the imperialists were restored to the Danes. The conditions imposed upon the king were that he should interfere no farther with the affairs in Germany than was called for by his character of Duke of Holstein, that he should on no pretext harass the chapters of Lower Germany, and should leave the Dukes of Mecklenburg to their fate. By Christian himself had these princes been involved in the war with the emperor. He now sacrificed them to gain the favor of the usurper of their territories. Among the motives which had engaged him in a war with the emperor, not the least was the restoration of his relation, the elector Palatine. Yet the name of that unfortunate prince was not even mentioned in the treaty, while in one of its articles the legitimacy of the Bavarian election was expressly recognized. Thus meanly and ingloriously did Christian IV retire from the field. Ferdinand had it now in his power for the second time to secure the tranquility of Germany, and it depended solely on his will whether the treaty with Denmark should or should not be the basis of a general peace. From every quarter arose the cry of the unfortunate, petitioning for an end of their sufferings. The cruelties of his soldiers and the rapacity of his generals had exceeded all bounds. 
Germany, laid waste by the desolating bands of Mansfeld and the Duke of Brunswick, and by the still more terrible hordes of Tilly and Wallenstein, lay exhausted, bleeding, wasted and sighing for repose. An anxious desire for peace was felt by all conditions, and by the Emperor himself. Involved as he was in a war with France and Upper Italy, exhausted by his past warfare in Germany, and apprehensive of the day of reckoning which was approaching. But unfortunately, the conditions on which alone the two religious parties were willing respectively to sheathe the sword were irreconcilable. The Roman Catholics wished to terminate the war to their own advantage. The Protestants advanced equal pretensions. The Emperor, instead of uniting both parties by a prudent moderation, sided with one, and thus Germany was again plunged in the horrors of a bloody war. End of part three.